it is so good to see all of you back in here. Let's be clear. It's not that the church has regathered. We are the church. We've just regathered inside the building, and that's good. Our marching orders never changed. We're told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. We're told to make disciples in all nations, to baptize those disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and having baptized them to keep teaching them everything that Jesus commanded us, knowing that He'll be with us every day until the end of the age. You never stop doing that. Even in those very few weeks when it was just about four people in this room and I was doing a terrible job preaching to a camera, you never stopped. You never stopped giving. You never stopped loving. You never stopped serving. You never stopped listening. You kept forging ahead with Jesus. And I don't know how much longer I'll be a pastor. I plan to be a pastor, God willing, for the rest of my life, but I don't know how long that is. But if God grants me a slow exit, I promise you that on my deathbed, I'll think of these hard days that we navigated together. Your love, your patience, your kindness, your continued service, the sacrifices, the adjustments, the flexibility that so many of you made just to keep obeying Jesus, the most moving thing I've ever witnessed in my Christian life. I really can't thank you enough. I checked the weather out of pure habit this morning <laughs> and asked myself, should we put up the canopies or not? How does the chance of being rained on compare to the chance of the canopies going flying across the parking lot? And then I remembered, it doesn't matter. We're back inside, baby. So praise the Lord. Congratulations. We will celebrate someday. But we ran out of bulletins five minutes before church even started. Sorry about that. We're going to keep getting better week by week. We're not used to being here. After service, somebody will be over there at that cross waiting to pray for you. They haven't stood there in well over a year. I'm not used to standing up here. I could fall off this stage as well. <laughs> Anything could happen. It's all on the table, but Jesus hasn't changed. The one thing that was in question, which was our love and our fruit of the Spirit and our faithfulness, that was proven. That grew through the pressure. So thank you. Congratulations. I praise the Lord for you. Now let's pray together and enjoy the Lord's Word. Father, thank you. Thank you so very much for your people being back inside the building that we dedicated to you. The building doesn't matter. The people do. But we are grateful for this shelter. We are grateful for this comfort. We took it for granted. We were used to it. We don't any longer take that for granted. We receive it as one of your many kind and generous blessings. Help us always to manage it well, to use all of these things, this money that is given, these classes that will be taught, the sermons that are preached, the counsel that is given, the youth and the children that are led. Lord, may it all be to obey you more fully so that you would be known and loved and glorified. I pray that in the name of Jesus, my Savior and my church family said, amen. amen. Please have a seat. Let's get started with the Bible. Let me remind you, Wednesday at 6.30 in this room, Dr. Sam Wellbaum, who is a philosopher, a professor of philosophy and the leader of the honors program at California Baptist University, will be here in the room to lecture 
on C.S. Lewis's famous screw tape letters. If you haven't read the book, you still have time to get it. It's a quick book. It's a fun book. It is one of the most insightful things ever written in English. If you'll read the book as best you can before Wednesday night, I know you'll enjoy my friend uh, Sam as he gives you a brief talk about C.S. Lewis and his thought within the screw tape letters, and then he'll open it up for question and answer. That's right here on Wednesday night at 6.30. We will be live streaming, and folks, our best days are just ahead. I'm excited about it. Are you ready to open the Bible now? Isn't it weird not to listen to uh, the cars racing by and the <laughs> horns blowing and the birds? I, I just got to tell you, right before the first service started, a bird flew in the auditorium. <laughs> and I thought, are you kidding me? It'll never be over. Even inside, we're going to have to deal with distractions. But the bird made three happy laps inside the room and then flew right over Pastor Jim's left shoulder on his way back out to the parking lot. So... All is well, here we are, and it is time to talk about parenting. As you know, we're in a series regarding doctrine, and most years, I basically, we honor and pray for moms and dads on Mother's and Father's Day, but we generally stick with what we've been doing. This year, because of the pressures and the changes on families, I decided prayerfully to change that, to talk to families and mothers on Mother's Day, and today I'd like to talk to parents and grandparents, and particularly to you who, like me, have the honor from God of being fathers. I don't want any shame or any guilt to be communicated in anything I say. Because this is the Word of God and because the standard of God is righteous and holy, you will at times, as I did, looking over these things, you may at times feel conviction. I hope you do. I hope as we navigate the Bible together, if you have been a father for at least a little while, God will be able to point out to you both encouragement of what you're doing well and encouragement and conviction of what is missing, what you need to correct. But at no point do I want you to feel any shame or guilt. God doesn't operate through shame and guilt. There's a difference. Conviction always wants you God in conviction always, it may feel heartbreaking, but it always motivates you to get up and keep walking more faithfully and do better the next time. Shame and guilt only make you want to give up. So if any father or grandfather or parent leaves here discouraged and more downhearted than you entered, either I have failed or I have been misunderstood. You should go home with fresh conviction. You should go home with fresh prayers. You should go home with encouragement. You may go home with a hard list of things that you need to do, but you should be motivated by the Spirit of God to do them. I want to talk to you candidly and openly. I learned just how vulnerable it was going to be during the first service. See, when I open up the Bible, you need to know that whatever I'm teaching you, God has taught me first. If you feel like I'm talking to you, please understand God has been talking to me all week about whatever I have found here, because I'm still in this battle with you. I have two sons. They're adults now. One of them, in fact, is halfway across the country in his first job, but I'm still a dad. And I've learned that parenting adults, just like parenting toddlers, has has its own blessings and has its own challenges. The challenges are different, the blessings are different, but every season of life and every season of parenting has its own struggle and has its own joy. 
And what we want to talk about today is, Dad, specifically in colloquial American language, your responsibility to coach your kids up. As you know, if you've been here for a little while, I'm sorry to have to keep talking about it. It's just part of my story, and it's always going to come up anytime I illustrate from my life what I've found in God's Word. It's not that my life matters, it's just that often what is eternally true in the Word of God can be seen in my experience and yours. And one of the most jarring things about growing up on the mission field, growing up just south of the border in Chihuahua, Mexico, is that when I moved to the United States, I had what I later came to understand in seminary, anthropologists call culture shock. I grew up the last three years before moving to the United States in seventh grade for a single year. I was in a little farming community in northern Mexico called Ciudad Delicias. And Ciudad Delicias was a quaint little town with a quaint little private school of about 100 kids. And because I was the only gringo in the school, I got it into my head that I was kind of a big deal. (laughs) I got bullied a little bit, but mostly they were proud of me that the white kid could speak Spanish just like they did. And I really enjoyed that school. I knew everybody. The principal knew me, looked out for me. Again, aside from a few unfortunate things where they would say, come here, gringo, let's talk to you for a second about international relations. It wasn't good. (laughs) When the U.S. was doing things that upset Mexico, I sort of sometimes became the representative of the United States in the classroom. Can't do anything about your government, but we can deal with you. Give us five seconds, give us five minutes behind the schoolyard building. And there we are. But mostly it was a good thing. And then my parents made the necessary but regrettable decision of moving back to the United States to the place where I was actually born, which is a little town in the panhandle of Texas called Amarillo. Anybody familiar? I was born there, so I can say with confidence that some people are right when they say that the only good thing to come out of Amarillo is Interstate 40. (laughs) It's not an easy place to be. Wind blows all the time. It's both baking hot and freezing cold, depending on the season. People are there tough, and I learned they didn't put up with any nonsense. So I went from being kind of a big deal in a tiny school to a terrified resident of Bonham Junior High School, home of the Mustangs in Amarillo, Texas. It was one of these junior high schools that put 7th, 8th, and ninth grade kids together. I'm glad they don't do that very often because you may have noticed there are 7th graders such as I was who are still little children who want to go home and play with some childlike toys, and then there are ninth graders who are grown men (laughs) who shave between class periods just to maintain a (laughs) professional appearance. So I was thrown into all of that, and I went from thinking I was a pretty good athlete to meeting real athletes, and most shockingly of all, meeting American coaches. See, when we were growing up in Mexico, we mostly played for fun. We were the stereotypical kids who took the ball out to the vacant lot, played until we couldn't see the ball anymore, and then went home. I did not know why America won so often on the world stage. I didn't realize that there was a system, a very intense system of men and women who coach children with intensity that you make you think it was the Olympics. This is Texas, so there's football. And these football coaches are coaching 12, 13-year-old boys, and they're very, very angry about it. (laughs) 
and there's jargon, and there's blood, and there's sweat, and there's tears, and there's insistence on technique. There's a whole universe of things that I, frankly, just, I didn't know it could be like that. And I think, as I tell you, I understood why the United States won so often, why the medal count was so high when we played the nations of the world. Why am I telling you this? Because if American families and American culture can be this dedicated to coaching athletes in what amount to games, in pursuits that are fleeting, that, only, that even in their best last only for a few years before this year's hero is replaced by injury or old age or simple inability to perform by somebody else who takes the spotlight, we can certainly, dad, we can certainly, moms, we can certainly, parents, do what the Bible tells us to do, which is to train our children to follow Jesus. That is the heartbeat, that is the essence, that is the prime responsibility of being a Christian parent. However your children came into the world, they may have been surprises to you, perhaps. They were not surprises to God. Children are a heritage from the Lord, beloved by God, chosen by God, given to you for a sacred responsibility, and your responsibility is to train them up. Let's look at Proverbs 22, verse 6, one of the most familiar passages in the Bible. Proverbs chapter 2, uh, I'm sorry, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. The Scripture will appear on the screens behind me at various times. I'm going to ask you to read it with me. Would you do it now, please? Proverbs 22, verse 6 says this, "'Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it.'" How many of you knew this verse already? Very well-known verse. It seems to offer a magnificent promise that if a child is trained in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is the first notable and memorable time in Scripture. It's not the only, it's not even chronologically the first, but among Scriptures that are familiar to Christian parents, this is a mountaintop experience in single verses of the Bible. If you will only train up a child in the way he should go, the principle is when that child is old, that child will not leave the way you set them on. Now, let me liberate some of you parents who have parenting adults from some guilt because this verse is often used to bludgeon parents whose wayward kids are breaking their heart. This is found in the book of Proverbs meaning these are literally wise sayings. What Proverbs almost always deliver are timeless truths, rules of thumb, things that are generally true, things that you can depend upon, but not absolute promises. They're Proverbs. That is the nature of wisdom. That is the nature of sayings. They are things that you can take to the bank but are not always and unconditionally true. I know that's true because I've been in ministry now for three generations. I can introduce you to countless ministry families where mom and dad have served the Lord with all their heart. They have three amazing, godly, Christ-like kids and the older kids in nitwit. And they love them all alike, they raise them all alike, they praise them, they encourage them, they taught them everything, but this older kid at a certain point decided he or she didn't care, 
Because obedience from children, which we're going to look at in a moment, at a certain point, the child has a choice. The child is in his own personal relationship with God. He also is being sought by God, and if there's going to be genuine love and faith between God and the kid, at a certain point, that child himself will choose to obey or disobey, to love or disregard Jesus. But generally speaking, this proverb tells you something very important. If you will set a child diligently on their path, when they're old, you can count on them to still be on it. Proverbs also invite you often into the proverb and force you to ponder how it can be true. This proverb can be true in several different ways. Let me just explain two of them. One is, train up a child in the way he should go putting the emphasis on the moral righteous path that God knows will get that kid safely and beautifully through life. There is a way that a child should go. There are choices. Some of those choices are true. Some of them are false. Some of them are righteous. Others are wicked. There is a path that parents must show to their kids and set them on it. A different way to look at this proverb, and both, I believe, are intended. That is the nature of proverbs. The writer invites you to turn these truths over in your mind and see how they may be true. Train up a child in the way, put the emphasis in a different part of the verse, in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Understanding, reading the proverb that way, doesn't put so much the emphasis on the single path that God wants every one of His children to walk, but on the nature of the individual child with different interests, with different capacities, with different gifts. To put it in very simple language, unless the things that are in your child's heart and gifting are displeasing to the Lord, whatever your kids are into, you need to get into those things. That will be a part of the main responsibility of this proverb. This first phrase, train up a child in the way he should go, speaks in the Hebrew language of dedication or initiation. In other words, the basic idea from 3,000 years ago is, listen, mom and dad, you have been given a precious child who does not yet know who God is, does not know what life is like, does not yet know the difference between truth and falsehood, between good and evil. Your job is to show them the path to God and get them to follow God. Your job is to help them discover who God made them to be and what God made them to contribute and to dedicate yourself to initiating them, to bringing them along in what God would have for them. If you do that, you can generally depend upon the fact that in their old age, they'll still be walking that path. In other words, you can't force your kids to follow Jesus but you can set a pattern of obedience to Him, and you need to. When mom and dad, through your own choices, through your daily sacrifices, through the way you process problems, through the way you deal with disappointment, through the way you deal with adversity, you show your children day by day, and not only in a church service when the congregation is watching, when you show them day by day what it means to act like a Christian, you will give them a pattern of obedience to Jesus which will be very hard for them to forget and for them not to repeat. I think of my own parents, and you'll have to indulge me. In the course of this sermon, I'm going to talk to you about two great dads that I know. 
One is my own father, the other is my father-in-law. I'm uniquely blessed because they are both extraordinary fathers. And growing up in a ministry home, and it's not the same for everybody who grows up in ministry. Sometimes ministry kids are the first to discover that there is hypocrisy not only in a church but also in their own home. I was raised by a man of integrity. I was raised by a man who wanted to honor God at whatever cost. And that came home to me. I think I was in fifth grade. I was reflecting on the timeline of when this happened. I believe I was in fifth grade. My dad was starting another church in Mexico in that little town I was telling you about. It exists today. It's still preaching the gospel today. But he and my mother had started it from literally no people and no building. Now there's a congregation of over probably a hundred people, and they were in the process of building a building. They were doing it with support that American churches were providing to our family. And they had come to a very difficult point in the construction. There were delays. There were more costs than expected. And my dad set the family down and explained that the funding to that point for the building had been exhausted. All that we had to put our hands on was what remained for our family's own provision for the rest of the month. And he explained, if I let the crew go, if I don't keep them at work, it'll take a lot longer to gather them. I'll probably never get those good workers back. It'll probably delay the building and drive up the cost even more. And I marveled that he did this because I think I was just a fifth grader. That's what, a 10-year-old child? But he said, this is our family and this is our ministry. This is our calling I think we should pray about trusting the Lord and give the money we have left. We have food in the house. We won't lack for anything, but let's give what we have left of the building and trust the Lord to take care of us in what remains of the month. And the humility of bringing a 10-year-old, I'm an only child, of bringing a 10-year-old to the table, bringing me into that grown-up pressure, that hard decision that my dad was facing. Now that I'm a grown man having raised two 10-year-olds, I marvel that he was willing to do that. So we made a family decision, and we prayed and gave to the Lord what little we had left. And just a few days later, in the Mexican mail, which was erratic and slow, especially in those days, came a check from an American donor who had never before given who enclosed a letter and a check saying, I don't know why I'm doing this, but as I prayed, the Lord moved on my heart to give you this amount of money. I hope it helps. It was in the amount that my dad had given toward the construction. Why am I telling you that? Not to brag on my father, but to tell you that a pattern of obedience to Jesus matters. That's one experience in giving in our family. There have been times where it has seemed difficult to me to give in my Christian life because I didn't have much, but it was settled for me when I was 10 years old. In giving, in prayer, in witnessing, in all that Jesus has commanded, if you will set a pattern of obedience to Jesus for your children, though you can't convert them, God will have to do that. You can't force them into discipleship. You can't turn their hearts to Jesus by yourself, but if you will obey Jesus right in front of them, if you will bring them into your own discipleship and set the pattern, you can count on them following Jesus in their old age. Look at what Ephesians says, Ephesians chapter 6. 
says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life on the earth. This Sunday, this Father's Day is dedicated to parents, but listen, if you're a child under the authority and under the influence and care of your parents, please understand the responsibilities are on both sides. Your parents' sacred responsibility is to follow Jesus and to teach you and train you and illustrate to you what it means to do the same. Your job is to obey them, to obey them because you love Jesus, to honor them because you love Jesus, knowing that in this particular commandment, that if you will obey your parents, the Lord will honor you by giving you a long and good life on the earth. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. I had to actually look it up in Greek. I wanted to make sure that the translators were literal. They were. When it says fathers, it is choosing a specific word to talk to dads. What it says here next is obviously true for parents and for grandparents. It's true for dads and moms, but the dedication, the emphasis is most definitely for the man in the house, for the father in the home. It says to you, dads, let me hear you read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. This is what you and I as dads are told to do. Read Ephesians 6, 4 with me. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Let me walk you through this. To bring up children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord literally means to nourish them. Your job as a dad is to nourish them in Christ, to put them in a relationship with Jesus, to understand, help them understand that He's in charge of everything, and to nourish them, to nurture them in their obedience to Him. Discipline and instruction seem like repetitive words. They're repetitive on purpose. It means that just like those angry football coaches back in Amarillo, Texas, they're going to, your instruction for your children is not going to be angry. In fact, it shouldn't be, but it is going to be complete. In other words, that you're going to be willing to tell them what to do, how to do things, and particularly what not to do. Good coaches, good trainers always have a small but hard list of don'ts. There are a few things, even in sports, that if you do those things incorrectly, you will never succeed. There's a few things, if you do them in football, in fact, you can cripple or kill yourself. Good coaches, good trainers, if we could only bring that same kind of intensity that we have in 12-year-old soccer fields to the home, we would, with love and insistence and diligence, train our children in the do's and the don'ts of following Jesus. What I'm trying to tell you, parents, is please, you be faithful and leave the outcome to God. That's what you must do. When God decided to give you children, He gave you a sacred responsibility. He gave them the capacity to know and to love Jesus and to use their unique gifts to follow Him for the rest of their lives. You can't determine all of that. You can't decide all of that for them. But if you will come alongside them and open up your heart and mind to the instruction of the Lord so that you will know the path they should be on, and you will diligently and lovingly dedicate yourself to telling them the way they 
should go, and also telling them the way in which they individually were uniquely made by God to follow Him and to contribute to Him, if you will do that, that will be faithfulness, and you can rest in your old age and in the moment of your death knowing that you have been faithful, and the lives of your children and the outcome from it belongs to the Lord. The reason I've been insistent on Father's and Mother's Day this year is to beg all of you who are parenting kids, especially young kids, to collaborate with them, but do not abdicate to them. I think the pandemic has exacerbated a temptation for parents. Let me tell you, parents, if your kids are 12 or 13 years old, you literally have no idea what they're into. There is a whole world available on the internet of rapidly developing technology. By the time you figure out what app your kids are into, that's long gone. You're old-fashioned. That's old news. I know this because my wife teaches junior high, and every year when she mentions Facebook, about 80% of the class of junior hires have no idea what she's talking about. And a couple years ago, one wise child said, hey guys, it's like Instagram for old people. That's Facebook for you. And what has happened is because of culture, because of the internet, because of the pervasiveness, the 24-7 availability of influence on your children, many parents have opted to take their hands off and not knowing what better to do, they just trust the child. Please don't do that. Don't trust your child. They don't know. It's not their fault. They don't know the stakes. They don't know the rewards of serving God. They don't know the cost of sin the way you do. They have not yet discovered their capacities. If I may return to that, whatever your kids are into, unless it's displeasing to the Lord, that's what you need to be into. You will do grave harm to your children. You will provoke them to anger if you try always to make all of them into your own mold. If God has given you a child that shares your own interest, jump in there and enjoy that because that already makes sense to you. But many of you who have multiple children will be given by God, children who have interests that have absolutely no excitement for you whatsoever. And at that moment, you need to be dedicated to those things, not because you like them, but because you love your child. Second great father that I've known is not only my own dad, but my father-in-law. Cecil is just amazing. He's a retired pastor, and thank God, years ago, he decided to retire from the pastorate and move here. He has made an absolutely life-changing difference to my life and the life of my sons. Cecil has surprised me when I first married his, uh, his youngest daughter. He raised three girls. Why God gave Cecil such wonderful daughters and such brothers, uh, sons-in-law as he has, I, I don't know. Just more patience, I guess. Chance for him to develop patience with the sons-in-law. We were early in the marriage. Sharice and I were on a family trip, all three sisters, all three uh, block-headed sons-in-law on a trip, and we went to one of these places called an outlet mall, which is an American invention where they take pretty nice stores, and on about 50,000 acres, they put <laughs> outlet stores where you can buy expensive things at a slight discount. Are you familiar with the concept? We spent all day there, 
And I marveled that this man who had been a boxer and a helicopter pilot and a football player who literally hunted for food to feed his family when he was a child growing up in northeast Texas, went into these stores, looked at these, looked at the jewelry, looked at the dresses, gave his opinion, negotiated for better deals. I mean, he was into it. And I said, sir, I don't have any sisters. I, can I just ask you, I want to run into traffic right now. How... How are you doing this? And he looked at me with incomprehension. He does that a lot. And then he taught me something. He said, well, Bruce, there's, there's nothing really about shopping for all this girly stuff that I really enjoy. But God chose to give me three daughters. And I decided early on to enjoy and do the things that they wanted to do, not because I like that stuff, but because I love them. Wow. See the difference? That's training. That's love. That's training up a child in the way that he should go. That's partnership. That's collaboration. But that's not taking your hands off. The temptation for parents right now is to be so overwhelmed by the changes in the culture and the speed in that change to simply throw your hands up, curse the world, curse the encroaching darkness, and stop putting out the light. Please don't do that. Listen to Proverbs 29, verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. If you leave a child to himself, to herself, if you leave a young man to decide on his own, the only thing that can reasonably await you, barring the miraculous grace of God and the intervention of other godly people doing what you should have done, is that you will bring shame to, you will experience the shame of seeing your kids behave that way. A second thing about this sacred responsibility of training your children Number two, training proves to your kids that you love them. If you will correct them, if you will instruct them, if you will initiate them into the ways of Jesus and into responsible adult life, what you will be doing at every moment, including and especially the moments that they don't like it, you will be proving to your children that you love them. Training proves that you love them. Listen to Proverbs 13, verse 24. In fact, read it with me, all of you. Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to correct him. If you withdraw discipline and correction to your child, Proverbs says you will be acting like you actually hate them. That first clause, that first part of verse 24 in Proverbs 13 is heavy. If you withdraw discipline, if you spare yourself the pain of confrontation, if you spare yourself the pain of telling your child they're wrong, if you spare yourself the emotional conflict of coming in a clash of wills and insisting on the way of Jesus, it will feel better momentarily. But Proverbs 13, 24 warns that if you withhold discipline, you're acting like you hate your kid. 
On the other hand, the person who loves their child is diligent, meaning they're timely, they're quick, they're consistent to discipline their child. Proverbs 19, verse 18, listen to this, discipline your son for there is hope. There is hope in discipline. Discipline your son for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Why does Proverbs 19, verse 18 say, do not set your heart on putting your child, putting your son, putting your daughter to death? These are Proverbs that will generally speak of sons. Obviously, all children are included. Why does it say, discipline your son for there is hope? Do not set your heart on putting him to death because, according to Proverbs, if you turn one of these precious children made in God's image, a heritage of God handed over to you and to you alone, they will have many friends and they will have many influences, but you alone will be given the sacred responsibility of parenting within the family unit where God has placed them. And if you act if you rather withdraw discipline, if you refuse to correct them, if you refuse to confront them, if you refuse to give them the sometimes costly, timely, and emotional burden of training them to follow the Lord, you're acting as if you wish they were dead. You would never say that. There's not a single parent in this room who wishes their child dead. But Proverbs 19 verse 18 says, if you withhold training and teaching and correction, you might as well act as if you're acting as if you hate them and you're saying by your actions, not with your words and your desires, you're acting as if you would rather they die. And I know at this point I need to make a clarification and offer a little bit of hope. Because Proverbs 19, verse 18 says, discipline your son, for there is hope. There is hope in discipline. There is hope in instruction. God has, God who made life, who owns life, who creates life, He has a path for the people He loves through life. And the hope for your child is to put their feet on that path to walk beside them with them as closely as you can, as lovingly as you can. And the reason I need to give some of you hope right now is some of you have, as I do, grown kids, and you feel like you've wasted all your chances. Or you know that you did your best with the best understanding you had at that time, but you feel like now it's too late. Let me help you. There is tremendous power in God dealing with the parent, if you recognize that you have been less than faithful in the things God told you to do, there is great power in going back and apologizing to your children and asking their forgiveness for the things you left undone. This is another thing my father taught me when I was a little boy. I was probably only four years old. My dad's a very loving man. He's very gentle. He's very, very strong, too. Those are stories for another time, but I saw my dad literally act with death-defying courage, put himself in harm's way more than once for the sake of the gospel. So my dad's got guts, but he's very tender, very tender-hearted. And when I was four years old, I did something stupid, ignorant, rebellious, and it annoyed him, and he did something harsh. 
wasn't violent, it wasn't abusive, but it was very sharp, it was very harsh, and it was so far out of his character that it frightened me. And as a four-year-old boy, even though his correction was right, he was on target, he was just harsh about it, I was so shocked and so shaken, I started crying. And my grown man of a strong dad, I was four, got down on both knees in front of me and said, buddy, what I just did was wrong. You were wrong to disobey me, but I was wrong in the way that I corrected you. Will you please forgive me? I was four. Now, what that did for me is make it a whole lot easier for me from the age of four to 51 to apologize and realize when I'd come up short, when I had sinned, when I had been harsh, when I had been irresponsible, to raise my hand and say, yep, that was me. It's not her fault, it's not his fault, that's all on me. Please forgive me, can I have another chance? I haven't always been quick to own my responsibilities, I haven't always been quick to apologize, but my dad, through loving strength, through setting a pattern, through initiating with humble example, he disciplined me, he taught me, he corrected me, and in doing that, he gave me great hope. And what I'm trying to tell you is that training for your children means love from you and hope for them. The best chance for your children is for you to correct them, is for you to train them. And the final thought is this, training your children frees you to enjoy them. I was a wayward little kid, so wayward, in fact, that I was just, I was thinking about all these things and reflecting on my dad, my mom and dad's parenting, especially my dad's. It really is a miracle that I made it. I was just, you know, often mistaken, never in doubt, that kind of kid. They were, it was time to take me to get vaccinated. And I hated shots, still do. And there was a long line. My parents, in their tenderness, had actually had their arms filled with the prizes and toys and coloring books they were going to give me on the other side of this ordeal. But taking advantage of their momentary distraction, I decided to make a break for it <laughs> and ran down the street in Chihuahua, Mexico. I was about a block away when they noticed I was gone because I was pretty quick when motivated. My coaches never saw the best of me because I was never that afraid on the football field. About a block away, I heard my father shout, Bruce, stop, come back. And I remember looking over my shoulder and taking the measure of the man and thinking, no, you'll have to catch me. And he did. About two blocks later, he caught up to me. And what should have been a good time was a terrible time because I don't remember ever getting the toys and prizes that they had set aside. But in all of their dealings with me, my parents made it clear to me that the reason they were doing things like getting me vaccinated, the reason they were doing things like dragging me to the dentist, because I never went willingly to the dentist. Did any of you ever go to the dentist willingly? What a profession. Poor dentist. Let's have a moment of just reverence for dentists, knowing that every person that shows up, nobody wants to be there. Everybody needs to, nobody wants to be. 
Why am I telling you this? Because the dentist in my childhood dentist had a sign in his office that said, you should only brush and floss the teeth you want to keep. <laughs> Good wisdom, that. If you don't care about having that tooth, don't worry about it. Just leave it alone. It is the same with children. You should only train and correct and discipline and nurture in the Lord the children you want to enjoy. Listen to Proverbs 29, verse 17. In fact, read it with me. It says this, Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. If we don't pay attention to the wisdom of Proverbs 29, verse 17, it just seems that training children is all a burden. It can be burdensome. It can be tiring and difficult both for the parent and for the child, but never lose sight of the fact of what you're pursuing. You are disciplining your children. You are correcting your children. You are nurturing your children so that someday you may have rest so that someday you may look at them and be delighted with what you see. Again, that wise father who is my father-in-law taught me so much about this. When my older son, Ryan, who's an Army infantry officer now, was only two years old, my wife, Ryan, and I moved in to live with my in-laws in their immaculate, beautiful home in West Texas. If you've been to the Maxie's house, you know. It's the kind of place where realtors often can, a realtor often dropped by to show their place as an example of what a home could be in that particular neighborhood. Can you imagine how difficult that is for me? He has the kind of house that you, is literally a showroom anytime because they work together to keep it that way. And, well, he's, bless his daughter's heart, she married me, okay? He's very disciplined, he's very orderly, and here we are, his young daughter, his young and dumb son-in-law, and a kid who's only two, but already showing the makings of the kind of young man that steps forward to go to war, okay? He's not afraid of anything, he's into everything, and he was doing his best in spite of my wife and my careful supervision to destroy that house. So one afternoon, we're sitting... <laughs> in that immaculate living room, and I hear death and destruction coming down the hall, and I look, and sure enough, here comes Ryan leaving a wake behind him that looked like the plague of Egypt was coming behind him with his mother in hot pursuit, shouting his name, trying to get him to stop. But again, remember, I'm the kid that runs down the street and dares his dad to catch him. He's got pretty much everything that's wrong with that kid he got from me, not from his mother. That's the, I've told him this many times. So they race by us, just like a cartoon. We sit in his beautiful living room, whoosh, goes the two-year-old, whoosh, goes his mother, shouting all the way behind him, and I was embarrassed. So I turned to him and said, ah, oh, parenting, tough deal, huh? And he looked at me with incomprehension. <laughs> Again, it's kind of a theme running through our relationship in these nearly 30 years I've been married to his daughter. And he said, you know, Bruce, I've never thought of parenting as difficult. Now it's my turn to look at him with incredulity. Listen, best parenting advice anybody's ever given me outside of Scripture. But the heartbeat of it is Proverbs 29, 17. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart.
He said, I never thought of it as difficult. I tried very hard to make it clear to my girls what I wanted them to do and what the Lord wanted in any situation. I really worked hard to make sure they understood what the Lord wanted and why their mother and I wanted them to do certain things. Listen. He said, and then, if I knew they were willfully disobeying me, I corrected them as quickly as I could so that we could get on with it and enjoy the rest of our day. That's it. He didn't hold grudges. He didn't threaten. He didn't count. Parents, please stop counting. All you're training your child is to delay obedience by five more seconds. You're training them to disobey you until consequences are imminent. He didn't say if they were childish and forgetful. He didn't say if they were merely ignorant, they didn't know any better. No, when he saw willful disobedience, he moved quickly to diligently correct them so that from that moment forward, now, thank God that's over, huh, kid? Hey, let's go have some ice cream. Let's go have some fun. Let's get on with it and enjoy the rest of our day. That's what it means for your child to give you rest. That's what it means for your child to give delight to your heart, just like the dentist said regarding teeth, you should only discipline and correct the children you want to enjoy. But dads, you must. There is a pop culture phenomenon where men with little or no reference to God are drawing America's young men to them. I'll give you two examples. One is a psychologist named Jordan Peterson. The other is a retired Navy SEAL commander named Jocko Willink. They have hard and fast rules. Jocko Willink's famous saying that he has probably made a fortune on says this, discipline equals freedom. Do you know where he got that idea? Whether he knows it or not, right here. Psalm 119 verse 45 says that I will walk freely in a wide open space because I study your rules. Yes, discipline equals freedom. Why are young men paying good money to buy books why are they flocking to conferences? Why are they filling their minds with podcasts from men who may or may, may or may not know and love the Lord Jesus because they're dying for discipline? They won't tell you so, but they want structure. They want the security of knowing that someone loves them well enough and diligently enough to show them the path that the Lord has for them and insist with loving, courageous faithfulness that they stay on it. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you, church, is to please God with the kids He gave you. Just do what He told you. If you've missed some opportunities, if you're brokenhearted and they're far from God, take some courageous, humble time to go and apologize to them. Ask if you can begin again, if you can begin investing again in their lives and set your path again on training up the children that God gave you so that later you can enjoy them. If you choose not to discipline your children because it is tiresome, because it is burdensome, if you choose the momentary rest of not doing your sacred responsibility, and I understand that because I'm a pastor. Many, many times when my kids were growing up, I went home so tired from listening and dealing with other people, it really annoyed me when my kids had been bad all day. I wanted rest. I didn't want to invest in them because I was tired of fighting those battles with other people's families and with other people's children. 
But by God's grace, he pointed out to me that if I was too tired to deal at home with what I knew to do better in the life of the church, I would fail them. When does that training stop? It never does. My son's a grown man. He's a platoon leader now, but I coached him up just this morning. I sent him some loving reminders of what Sunday should be and the kinds of spiritual disciplines he should pursue. I did it with humility because he's a grown man now. He's 1,200 miles away. He can do anything he pleases. I do it because I love him. I do it because I'm grateful that God gave him and his brother to me. I am so grateful for the sacred responsibility and privilege that I've been given that I'm determined and I'm pleading with you to be determined to please God with the kids that he gave you by doing what he told you. Let's pray. Father, would you now move in the hearts of families, moms and dads, and dads in particular, Lord, and encourage them and strengthen them, please? Some dads need to go home and make a phone call, schedule a conversation. Others need to just go home and continue to enjoy what they've been doing well. Whatever the case is, you care about all of us. And I pray, God, that you would give strength and joy and courage and humility and whatever is missing in our obedience to you, that you would supply it, that we would be humble to receive it for the sake of our children. We love you. We thank you. And we ask you all of this in the name of Jesus. Could I ask you to stand with me? We haven't been back inside the room for a long time. I wonder if we could go home by singing one more song together. It's not planned just came to me in the first service that maybe we should sing again before we went home. Don't worry about the words. You know them. It's the most loved of all English language hymns. Let's sing the first and last verse of Amazing Grace, shall we? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I am found was blind but now I see when we shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Father, thank you. You've been so faithful to us. Help us to be faithful to obey you for the sake of our children. In Christ's name, Crosspoint said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Love you.